Good evening. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to this Monday night sitting group. Um, and if we've not met before, my name is Jack Cornfield, and this is the 22nd, 23rd year of this sitting group. Um, and Spirit Rock Center, uh, if this is your first time here, um, particularly like to welcome you to this beautiful valley and this beautiful piece of land. Spirit Rock Center has grown here in this valley over the past decade and a half or more through the collective commitment of a whole community of people to the twin principles of compassion and wakefulness or inner freedom of heart that are central to the teachings of the Buddha but that are really part of all wise spiritual life. And so Monday night serves in a way as a kind of introduction to the practices and the teachings that are then elaborated here on day-long retreats and week-long retreats. We have a wonderful residential retreat facility and in various programs, family life as a spiritual practice, informed citizenship as a spiritual practice, meditation in the arts or meditation and healing and so forth. But underneath those twin principles of wakefulness, compassion. So it, Monday night gives you a, a bit of a taste of the teachings and practices. Um, it also serves another group of friends who come more regularly over the years in spite of the crowdedness sometimes, just as a way for us to begin the week together, sitting, period of silence, and listening to the heart so that we can guide the days ahead from a place of um, inner stillness and understanding from our deepest intentions. Um, tonight also uh, a friend is up here to, um, well, to, to the left of me as you look at me, Doug, who's got a video camera, you know, they're ubiquitous now. Um, he's actually making, offered to make a, a video for our website of what it looks So as I reflected uh, on a talk for this evening, I was quite aware of the kind of political madness going on out there because even our telephone answering machine was getting filled up with all these automatic messages, hello, this is, you know, someone you've never heard of telling you what you should do with your vote or your life or something. Um, <laughs> And behind all of that, I mean, in a certain way, politics is a kind of ritualized warfare, really. It is. Um, ritualized combat, they don't use tanks and missiles at this point, um, although some people probably would like to do that if they could, but <laughs> it's, it's some kind of ritualized combat to take over the power in one way or another. Um, and underneath that are the real problems of the society that need to be addressed, those kinds of injustices that are still here or the the need for the society to care for everything from the common good of roads and parks to the to the well-being of um, children or or people's health care um, not to speak of dealing with the bigger problems of international war and conflict and racism and global warming and all of that stuff and everybody's heard enough about it on all these kind of cacophony of voices um, and I thought, well, let's try to make it a little quieter tonight and not talk about that. There's a passage from uh, Thoreau in Walden where he writes, <coughs> Sometimes in a warm morning, having taken my accustomed bath, 
I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie amidst the pines and hickories and sumacs, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sang around or flitted noiseless through the house, until by the sun falling in at my west window, or the noise of some traveler's wagon on the distant highway, I was reminded of the lapse of time. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. And I realized what the Orientals mean by contemplation and the forsaking of works. And I thought, thank you, Thoreau. I thought maybe tonight more about some still center and some silence and some simplicity. Also today, I had a conversation with a couple of newer members of the community whose uh, adult child had just died a few days ago accidentally, and of course were in grief and shock and so forth. And they were asking me, what happens when you die? Among many things, we were talking about loss and our love for our children and all those things. and it, I was reminded of the story of the Dalai Lama. Um, actually, I remember him saying it in one of the times being around him. Um, someone was asking, about de- asking him about death. And he said, well, he was actually, in some ways, very much looking forward to the time that he died. because." And then he laughed, that wonderful Dalai Lama laugh. <laughs> then he would get to see, maybe, um, if all the things that he had been teaching and learning were true. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a certain way in which um, when we drop into the the deep questions of our life, um, and want to find answers, those kind of questions take us to um, a different level of guiding how we live and who we are and what we do than these kind of outer barrages that we may be subject to in the culture. And I think we start first um, with our not knowing, because there's so many things that we really don't know. I love reading from the Middle Eastern poets, from the poets of Iraq, you know, the wisdom of Iraq and Afghanistan and Turkey and, and so forth, and from the richness of those cultures, from Rumi and Hafez. And so here's Rumi. He says, you've lost your camel, my friend, and everyone's giving you advice. You don't know where your camel is, but you do know these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement and gives you their opinion. <laughs> Sounds like politics, doesn't it? He says this in order to be somehow connected with your camel when you find it. He has indeed lost a camel, but he doesn't know it. Everyone's looking for something, but we are like the thief who steals from his own house. We are what we seek. So some years ago, um, kind of contemplating the mysterious nature of life. First, I guess, uh, I was reading a few things that made me, you know, think about the Dalai Lama's comment and how we really don't know so much. Um, I was reading a book um, by Robert Ardry about his encounter with Louis Leakey, the famous (coughs) paleontologist in Africa who kind of discovered a lot of the early uh, human remains from a million, two, three million years ago, and Robert Ardry, who was a great naturalist. And they were standing there, and, and, and Louis Leakey pointed out to him this amazing coral and white flower that looked like a hyacinth. And then he shook it, and it turned out to be made out of these insects that all flew away. Incredible color. And, and uh, um, 
Robert Audrey said, well, that's amazing that these bugs imitate uh, a flower so that they don't get eaten. Yeah, and then, and then Leakey smiled and said, yeah, and there's no such flower in Africa either. They've made it up. And then after a little while, all the bugs came back. There was one little green one. There were a few white ones, a few pale pink ones, and then a lot that were deep coral. And they all landed on this branch. And then he said, I sat there and watched for about 30 seconds. And they were all climbing over one another. And then pretty soon, there was the green bug in the center, the little white ones, the pale pink ones, and then all the coral ones. And the whole flower had reconstituted itself. And he said, I just was speechless. Pablo Neruda, who writes, when did the honeysuckle begin to know its own perfume? And when did the pine tree realize its fragrant effect? And how did smoke learn to fly? And why is the scorpion poisonous and the elephant benign? And what song does the rain repeat? And where do birds go when they leave? What we know is so little, and what we presume is so much. So a woman came to see me who had been practicing meditation some years ago um, because her husband had died. And he was a uh, healer in the community and very well respected. And they'd been doing insight meditation practice, mindfulness practice, but they were they just had a kind of spiritual household, and so they were connected with other communities. There was a Sufi and a Tibetan, various communities around, and they were connected with a number of them. So she called me and she said, I have to speak with you. Um, uh, I'm really confused and in difficulty. And it turned out that after her husband had died, he was really beloved in the community. Everyone came and brought food and care and love for her for a time. And then as the weeks went on, she received a call first from a Tibetan Lama who said, called her and said, I just have to tell you, I've been doing the 49 days of chanting and visualizations from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and um, he is fine. I connected with his spirit doing this practice, and he's entering the, you know, the green light of Amitabha or whatever it happens to be in this particular realm, in this particular time. He's, he's really okay. And she felt very reassured, because this was a very wise, beautiful Lama. Um, but then a few days later, she got a phone call from a friend in the uh, Christian mystical community who you know, shared her concern and so forth and said, I have to tell you, I was doing this meditation. You know, and there, you know, in the depths of my meditation, when I, when I really saw the um, luminous realms of, of the angels and so forth in this whole Christian mystical practice, and I could feel his spirit, and there he was, and he's okay, and you don't need to worry. And so she got a little bit confused. And so she decided to call this wonderful Sufi teacher that she knew, um, and uh, she dialed him up. And he answered, and before she could even ask anything, he said, you know, it's so good that you called, because I've really been tracking his spirit, and he's now, you know, ready. He's actually, you know, he was in the intermediate, in the, in the realm between birth and death. And I was able to follow him, and he's already um, in the womb of a woman in Washington, D.C., and it's a good family, and so forth. <laughs> So she said, can I come and talk to you? <laughs> sure. So she told me this story, and she said, so what do you think? You know, and I wasn't going to add some new story to that. I mean, it's pretty silly. Um, and these are confusing times, not just because we uh, face the mystery of death, but also because we face the mystery of life, which is equally strange. Not only those bugs, but our own incarnation. I mean, here we are in these, how did you get in here? In these funny bodies with little bits of fur, you know, and then we fluff it up, if you have some to fluff up, right, and color it different ways and 
tie it and do stuff with it. I mean, it's so strange, right? It is. And then you go into the spiritual bookstores, right? And there's yoga and mysticism and Hindu and Hasidic and Christian mystical and Tibetan Vajrayana and Advaita and Dzogchen and, you know, all the, you know, metaphysical philosophies. And then there's all this, I mean, where do you start? Um, And then there's all this stuff about reincarnation, right? I mean, I remember hearing, um, oh, I saw, it was actually an ad I saw that said, do you want to be rich, really rich? Well, the only way to truly ridiculous wealth is to be born into it. And let's face it, you've pretty much blown it this time around. But now there's a way. The reincarnation connection, next lifetime guarantee. <laughs> Guaranteed wealth or your money back for fifteen ninety-five. You know, this was, I think it was in a Berkeley newspaper. <laughs> I mean, and then I saw a t-shirt. That I'm sure some of you have seen this t-shirt. It was being worn by a, a, a teenager. And it said, I reincarnated for this, question mark, you know. (laughs) But there there we have all these different competing, interesting, compelling spiritual teachings. And what are we supposed to believe? I mean, where did this guy go? You know, was he in Washington, D.C., in someone's womb, or in the white light of the ascended masters, in the Christian mystical vision? or in some Tibetan realm. What do we actually know ourselves? What do you know? And this is really the question that I asked her as well. Even if the Buddha and the Dalai Lama and your mother said no, you would say, yes, I do know this. What do you know that's so, so true? And I'm not talking about beliefs, because there are all these beliefs. You know, here's a story. The kids in the fourth grade class were studying whales. Remember that? Baleen whales that don't have teeth, but they have the baleen to kind of filter all the krill and things like that, and sperm whales and so forth. And the fourth grade teacher said at one point um, that, the, that the way that the whales' mouths and teeth and so forth are designed, that they couldn't actually swallow something too big. They couldn't swallow a person because their throat's too small. And one little girl said, what about Jonah? And the teacher said, no, it can't be done. Their throat's too small. And the little girl said, but Jonah was swallowed. And the teacher said, you can't know that. You know, that's a story. And she said, yes, I can. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. And the teacher said, well, what if he didn't go to heaven? What if he went to some other place? And the little girl looked at the teacher and said, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) (laughs) It's not about belief in the end. I mean, belief is a beautiful thing, but there has to be something different than that. And if you ask the question, what do you really know, if you are asked that, and that doesn't matter what spiritual system has some opinion about it, there aren't so many things spiritually that we can say we know for absolute sure. And I've sometimes asked in groups when I have this conversation in a smaller group, and people will raise their hands and say, what is it that you really know? One thing people often say is that everything changes except maybe my ignorance, that seems to stay, but mostly everything changes. Or somebody else, you know, raised their hand and said, in this world, it's a dualistic world. There's pleasure and pain and gain and loss and light and dark and up and down and sweet and sour. Anybody not have that? Or somebody else raised their hand and said, whatever I believe, I know that there's another point of view, another opinion. Also, kind of very wise. Um, Okay, another story for you, just because we need it these times. 
About a century or two ago, the Pope decided that all the Jews had to leave Rome. Naturally, there was a big uproar in the Jewish community. So the Pope and the Jews met, and they um, proposed an alternate, that they would have a religious debate with one member of the Jewish community, and if the Jews won, they could stay, and if the Pope won, the Jews would have to leave. And the Jews who were there realized that they had to make their best choice, so they picked this middle-aged guy named Moshe. And he went to the Pope and said, I'm quite happy to debate you, but I would like to ask for one uh, requirement, and that is that our debate be done without words. Okay, so the debate came. Moshe and the Pope sat opposite each other quietly for a time, and the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moshe looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his fingers in a circle around his head. Moshe pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine. Moshe pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man is too good. The Jews have won. They can stay. An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope asking what had happened. He said, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there is still one God common to all our religions. Then I waved my finger around to show that God is all around us. And he responded by pointing to the ground and showing that God was also right here with us where we sat. I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins. And he pulled an apple out to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? <laughs> Meanwhile, the Jewish community crowded around Moshe. So what happened, they said. Well, first he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. I told him not one of us was leaving. Then he told me the whole city would be cleared of the Jews. And I let him know we were staying right here. Yes, and then, asked the crowd. I don't know, said Moshe. He took out his lunch and I took out mine. is cross-cultural communication. <laughs> but we know it so often. I mean, people get fixed, whether it's scientific or spiritual or sociological or religious or temperamental or psychological. All of us have our language and our views. And when we're lost in them, we actually don't see the person in front of us. We lose sight of what we really know. So what is it that we actually can know? I saw these simple things. Everything changes. Whatever opinion we have, there's also some other view that our world is dualistic, that it's light and dark and gain and loss and birth and death and pleasure and pain. And these we know through direct observation, through the direct experience of the way things are again and again. And this the Buddha said, if you want to know wisdom, Look into your own direct experience again and again. And all the elders and traditions will say this. Um, see that bamboo over there? One young monk asked the, asked the Zen master, you know, show me enlightenment, teach me enlightenment. He said, see that bamboo over there, how short that one is? Yes. And see how that tall that one is? And the monk said, yes. He said, I've hidden nothing. Things are the way they are. Once a great man sat under the Bodhi tree, said the Zen master, saw the morning star and became awakened. He absolutely believed his eyes, his ears, his nose, his tongue and body. The sky is blue, the earth is brown. This moment is like this. I would posit that these few things that we can know so deeply and directly, and I don't know what they are for you, but these simple kinds of truths may be enough. And they'll save you a great deal of study and you know money on spiritual books and things like that. I remember teaching together with Brother David Stendelrass, this wonderful old Cistercian monk. And he was talking about the parables of Jesus. 
one point, you know, the lilies of the field and the sower of the seed and vineyards and various other parables and so forth. And he said, by what authority does, do, does Jesus teach? And everybody raised their hands, you know, Christian, by, by the, the authority of God, his father, or whatever their kind of answer was. And Brother David shook his head and said, no. If you read before the parables or written into them in, in a way that they're taught is a simple phrase that goes something like this. Who among us does not see? Who among us does not know the lilies of the field? Who among us does not see? Or who among us would, could cast the first stone? He doesn't speak from an authority outside the heart, but rather from the intelligence and wisdom and understanding that is shared collectively among us when we listen. My teacher Ajahn Chah called this the one who knows in us. And in some way, meditation is an invitation just to get quiet, like Thoreau sitting in his doorway, to quiet the mind, open the heart, and touch within us the one who knows, this deep knowing. So, in the Buddhist teachings, it is like this. Very, very simple basics. Everything is impermanent, says the Buddha, in, over and over in different ways. Or my teacher Ajahn Chah used to call it uncertain. I'm sure you've noticed. What's going to happen tomorrow? Completely uncertain. Nobody knows. And in this world, uncertainty is, is the law. And wisdom says, this is how it is. Can you relax with uncertainty? Because otherwise you'll just be afraid and uptight. It doesn't stop it from being uncertain, does it? Or can you bow to and accept uncertainty? Life is a constantly morphing thing. Just when you think you know where it's all headed, you wake up the next morning to a completely different view. The landscape has changed along with the seasons. But the trees are the same trees, only your view has changed. So you try to cling to the old things that used to comfort you, cling to the familiar, but they provide little or no solace. The fears do not subside. At this point, we have no choice but to surrender to the unknown. And this is where the real beauty lies. It is not in the knowing, the familiar, the expected, but in the embracing of the unknown and the mystery a willingness to walk down a new path and to trust that everything is as it should be. Schopenhauer said, when you look back on your life, it looks as though it were a plot, but when you're in the middle of it, it's a mess. <laughs> Just one surprise after another. But then later you see it had harmony, it had a flow, it had reason to it. Sometimes there are little glimpses of this perfection in the midst of the mess, and then there's a moment of real relief and understanding. So, Buddhist teachings, things are uncertain, get with the program, relax. You know, you're going downstream, you might as well go with it. And to meditate allows us to find some harmony with that. Another of the Buddhist teachings, is that the cause of our suffering is our clinging. Really kind of simple. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to have various people come to him who were in the throes of difficulty and so forth. And he would listen to them or look at them, or sometimes he would just say, are you suffering? He'd say that sometimes in the wander around the monastery and meet his monks, are you suffering today? And if you said no, he said, oh, great, beautiful day, isn't it? And smile and walk along. And if you said yes, he'd say, hmm, must be clinging, must be quite attached. And then smile and walk along. <laughs> and it was like, it was that simple. It's kind of like the idiot light on the dashboard. You know, it lights up red. If there's suffering, it's because you're clinging to the way you want it to be rather than the way that it is. It's not very complicated. Or another simple teaching. 
that because this world is made of joy and sorrow and gain and loss and fame and disrepute and praise and blame, and because then we each have a certain share of loss and and disrepute and pain, it has pleasure and pain in it, um, and blame. Anybody not have that? Just checking here. (laughs) One of the natural responses to our human predicament is compassion. It just is. Meaning if you see a child who's crying or suffering, your immediate impulse is to pick them up or to somehow try to comfort them, a little child. And in a certain way, we're all in the same situation as that child. We're in the situation of a lot of things that we can't control. Some that we can, or it seems like we can anyway, and lots we can't. Um, Gain and loss, praise and blame. Who can control praise and blame? Pleasure and pain. And so the heart's natural response is compassion. Now, what if you lived from these simple realizations? Maybe these are enough. Things change. Find your way in the midst of change. Accept it. Suffering comes from clinging. Wisdom and graciousness comes from letting go. We all have our measure of sorrows as well as beauty. The natural response is compassion. It's so simple. So when the Buddha was teaching about this human incarnation, he said, your, your experience is like a river, a river of sensations and sense experience, a river of feelings, a river of perceptions a river of thoughts. You know that whole stream of thoughts that go all the time inside? Remember that little cartoon I talk about from the New Yorker? Car going across the landscape in Nevada, you know, huge, vast landscape, and the roadside billboard that says, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? Okay. You sit in meditation and the mind just does, does its thing. The stream of thoughts, the stream of feelings, the stream of perceptions, The Buddha said, our experience are these rivers and a river of consciousness. If you cling to them, claim them, try and make them mine, my feelings, my opinion, my thought, the more you cling, the more rigid you get, the more you'll suffer. But if instead of trying to possess them, you hold them with compassion and love, there is a sense of graciousness or ease rather than possession, then your heart becomes free. And you can move through the circumstances of life following the river and following the stream of love and compassion rather than that of fear, which is really what clinging is about. Now, somebody might say, that's fine, but what about all the Buddhist realms and rebirth and karma and abhidharma and psychology and the seven of this and the eight of that and the eleven of these? You know, all those Buddhist lists. The Buddha was a list maker, right? He was. So there's a story from that time of a man who came to the Buddha and said, I understand that you're a Buddha. The Buddha said, yes. He said, good, I have a couple of questions for you. And the main question I have is, what happens when you die? And the Buddha said, well, why do you want to know? He said, because once I know that, then I'll know how I should live. And the Buddha looked back and said, all right. Suppose it is that you have many lifetimes, as is taught commonly in India. How then would you want to live? And the man reflected and he said, well, if I have many lifetimes, I'd want to be generous to people because it feels good now, but also it would sow the seeds for abundance in the future. And I'd want to be loving and compassionate to people because that also feels really good, but it would sow the seeds for in future lives for people to love and care for me. And I'd want to be particularly mindful and wakeful um, because it would let me to appreciate things and also it would sow the seeds in future lives for great wisdom. The Buddha said, just so, my friend. Now suppose that there's only one life, that this is it. How then would you want to live? And the man reflected for a minute and he said, well, 
I'd want to be particularly generous because you can't take it with you then, right? And, and it feels so good to share. And I'd want to be compassionate because if this is the only life, this is the only chance you get to love the earth and those around you. Oh, and I'd want to be particularly mindful and aware because if this is the only dance, you really want to pay attention to it. So obviously he answered in quite the same way. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. And that was the end of the conversation. In a certain way, all of the teachings of the Buddha are directed to a kind of simplicity in presence and a fearlessness. And it doesn't mean fear doesn't come, but something bigger than the body of fear, the small sense of self, some trust in the mystery of our own lives and in this universe. And knowing that we can find and experience freedom wherever we are, that that is true. Nelson Mandela, in, Ra in his prison cell for 27 years in Robben Island, had a free spirit. And whatever circumstance you find yourself in and whatever you're carrying, and some of you it's a lot, it is still possible to find freedom. So my friend Ajahn Sumedho, abbot in England, he writes, he said, for Western minds who are obsessed with compulsive thinking and grasping, I suggest you simplify your meditation practice down to just one thing, these two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that, the grasping mind wants to read the Buddhist texts and study the Abhidharma and learn Pali and Sanskrit and Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana and write books and become a renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go? <laughs> For years, I did nothing but this in my meditation practice. Every time I tried to grasp and figure things out and make myself into something, I'd say, let it go, let it go, until those desires would fade. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the great Buddha of the age, Maitreya, and radiate love throughout the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we only have these poverty-stricken practices. <laughs> What's true is that we can be free wherever we are. Our heart can be free. And I know, having sat, done hospice work, and sat with people who are dying, that the questions at the end of life are really not very complicated. You know, very, very simple questions. Did I love well? Did I love the people around me? Did I love this earth? Did I live fully, give myself to this life? And now, you know, do I know how to let go? Because if you don't learn there's a kind of crash course at the end. I mean, you have to do it. Right? They're not very complicated. And it's such an honor to be with someone at that time because things are so genuine and so real. And people will say to me, especially ones that I sit with who meditate, without this Dharma training, I'm afraid I would be lost. I'm not sure they would. There's this intuitive wisdom. But it really does help. It helps because we shift from the body of fear, the small sense of self that's always worried and controlling, we start to sense that there's a well-being and an awareness, which is really the space of mindfulness itself. The, sometimes it's called the, the mind of the Buddha or the vast heart of compassion, where we can let go and hold our life's experience without reaction and confusion and fear as if we could bow to it, our eyes open, and this is the way things are. And from this, then there comes an immediate and natural response of care and compassion, not just for those in front of us, but also for ourselves. Because the circle of compassion 
is never complete if it's just about everybody else. You know who has to be included in it for it to be wise. This one seated right here, or as Miss Piggy would say, moi. Yes, this one. Then it makes compassion real. So Aldous Huxley, when he was dying, this kind of famous account, um, he was there with Laura Huxley and some friends and called some people over. He said, you know, all my life I've read and studied and written all the great teachings of the world. And I'm embarrassed to say at the end here, it seems to me that it all boils down to one simple thing, just to be kind. I mean, this is kind of the Dalai Lama's message. He's a kind of um, exemplar of kindness. A willing heart, a kind heart. Sylvia, who just finished, just gave me the manuscript for a new book that she just wrote, which is shorter than her last book. She said, she said I'm getting to the point where I really don't have much to say as a teacher because it all seems to boil down to a few simple things, like keeping your heart open, being compassionate and kind. I don't have a lot more to say than that. Maybe sensing that you can be free in the, in the midst of all the changes of the world. To do this means, like the Buddha, to sit or walk or be in your life and see the way the world is without rejecting anything. When I say that, without rejecting anything, it doesn't mean that you have to allow injustice or allow the, the suffering of unnecessary suffering of creatures, human and other otherwise. But the first step is to actually see the way it is. It is the way it is. Suppose you don't want there to be the spread of nuclear weapons around the world, which seems to be happening. Before you can do anything, you have to notice that they're spreading. And you have to notice that there's all these stockpiles that aren't very well guarded, and also notice all the potential horrors of that. So the very first essential step is to sit and say, let me see things the way they are. And in this, the question in your own practice is, what in your life, what in your practice is unacceptable to you? And can you sit and say okay to this? doesn't mean that you have to follow it. I mean, I'm not saying you should follow every thought and feeling. You'll get in a lot of trouble for that. But you need to know it and say, okay, this is the feeling, this is the thought, this is the perception. Can you actually sit honorably and see the way things are? I remember Robert Hall, my good friend, when I was a much newer as a teacher 30 years ago, he was a, at that time already a pretty well-known psychiatrist. He'd founded the Gestalt Institute of San Francisco, worked with Fritz Perls, various things. And I went to him. I was just finishing my clinical training and doctorate in psychology, and I said, I'm getting to really understand the patterns in people and the pathology and kind of what's wrong. I, you know, when people come and see me, I can figure out now really their problems and what's going on, but I don't yet know what to do with that, like how to help, help fix them in some way. I said, so I've got the first step. And he looked at me and said, oh, I don't do that. And I got really curious. I said, you don't? He said, no, I sit with people and help them to see what's true. And all the healing that's necessary comes from that. That simple. So what you discover in being with what's true is that non-attachment, not clinging, is not the same as indifference. doesn't mean we don't care or we push things away. Non-attachment or non-clinging means that we bring an open-hearted presence to what is so and then let the one who knows this wisdom respond. Practice is an opening of the body and the mind and the heart with compassion to experience the way things are and to allow the wisest response 
to come from you. And it will if you sit quietly and listen. You know what's wise. You even know when you're not being wise. You know you're really pissed off and you want to get somebody back and you're all that stuff. And you're doing it, but some little part of you says, well, you know, I'm doing this, but this really isn't the most noble moment of my life. It just isn't. <laughs> you know that. And I remember sitting on a retreat and having this woman come in who'd suffered a lot of abuse as a child and including kind of sexual abuse and so forth. And she now was working with perpetrators. It was kind of amazing. She told her whole story. And she said, and I sat in this room recently, she said, with uh, about a dozen men who'd been convicted. She was working in the criminal justice system. She said, and I looked around and I, I began to get them to tell their stories. And in a little while I was sitting in a room with a dozen abused children. That's the stories. And all of a sudden, I knew where I was and what I had to do. So it wasn't just me, it was us. It's not that complicated. And it's strange. People are looking for the mystery, you know, in spiritual life, special states. Did you ever meet a teacher who could levitate? You know, I had a, I had a student on this last retreat who'd been with a, with a guru in India that taught them how to levitate. And she said, would it be all right when everybody's eyes are closed in the meditation hall if I do a little of my levitation? I said, it's fine, it won't hurt anybody, you know. But people look for that, right? As if, okay, then I'm going to believe something's mysterious in this world. Duh. I mean, where do your thoughts come from? They come trooping out of emptiness, you know, full-blown. I mean, better than all 200 channels that you can get from, and more reruns, of course, at the same time, you know. And what about falling in love? I mean, what amazing, wonderful madness that is, you know. Or what about baked Alaska? Or, or what about spider webs? I mean, that a little insect weaves stuff and, and jumps from one thing to another and gets back and weaves it. I mean, it's fantastic. What are you looking for? It's here, or eating, talking. Here we have this hole at one end of the body that we stuff the dead plants and animals in, right? And we squeeze the lungs and uh, move the muscles. You even know how you do it, but you do and shape your mouth and you make sounds and I can say an elephant, a pink elephant. Visualize it, right? Floating on a cloud. And you can actually picture a pink elephant. The air vibrates and it vibrates the, you know, um, eardrum and the, the little tiny, the anvil and the stirrup, the little bones in there and then it goes into that inner ear canal with the, the liquid and then it tickles those cells that line it and then the sodium potassium balance electrical charge in the nerve and it goes to your auditory center in your brain and you think pink elephant that is weird it is completely weird and nobody no neurologist no biologist can really explain it it is so mysterious it is So the story is told that when the Buddha was walking down the road shortly after his enlightenment and a person came along and saw that he was obviously somebody kind of interesting. I mean, he must have at least been in a good mood, but more than that probably, and said, wow, you know, you seem to be in some great state. Tell me, are you some kind of a Deva or an angel? The Buddha said, no. Well, are you some kind of wizard or magician? No. Well, are you some kind of god? Buddha said, no. Well, are, are you a man, a human? And the Buddha said, no. That was really interesting. Well, then what are you? And the Buddha replied, I am awake. And in those three words gave the whole teachings of, the, of all the years that followed. Because the word Buddha means one who is awake. Awake to what is here and now in the reality of the present, not the past or the future. Yes, we have those thoughts and we can plan, but who actually sees the mystery of life here 
and is awake in it rather than lost and caught in it. And this wakefulness, which is the nature of consciousness, mindfulness, pure awareness, is available to us in any moment. And you already know this. I mean, you know the times and moments when you get completely caught up in something, and angry or upset or lost or frightened and so forth, and then there'll be the moment where you, this little voice says, wow, you're really caught up in this, aren't you? You know that moment, that little voice? And it's almost like the bubble pops a little and you step back and rest in the space of awareness and say, this is an amazing movie. You know, I paid my ticket and I went down to see a romantic comedy or a tragedy or, you know, whatever it was that you went to see. This is amazing. And here we are, just in this present moment, which is always the present moment. So the invitation from Thoreau, from the Buddha, from the Zen masters and so forth, is to take a breath, stop, settle back come into the reality of the present, see what's in front of you, this mysterious life, and trust your heart's response of compassion and love, because it's as innate to you as your own breath, because we're all connected. It's there when we stop and we're not waving our arms so much and confused. Zen master Nyogen Sensaki said, do not put a false head above your own That's all those ideas and thoughts about how things should be. And then moment by moment, watch your steps closely. That's all the Zen I have to teach. Be with things the way they are. Be present. And the heart's response will come to you. It will. It's not about self-improvement, you know. This isn't like coming to the gym, you know, and going to therapy and then going to get Botox, you know, and then going to the tanning thing, and then, you know, getting another graduate degree and all those things. Those are fine things. I mean, you need those too, maybe some of them, the therapy anyway. But you know, it's, um, it's not really about self-improvement. It's so much bigger than that. It's about returning to love, connectedness, mystery. And every great elder, whether you go to Africa or whether you go to Afghanistan and the sages, the Sufis who've been there for, you know, a thousand years, or whether you go to the Native American elders, you know, when the elders get together, they just laugh because they see this mystery. And then they see everybody kind of confused, running around. Let's see. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn all over the ground. And as you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice and you're ready to shout out, at you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can shout, catch your breath, you see that the person you bumped into actually is blind. And there he is sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our human situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of misery and disharmony in this world is ignorance, we can open the door of compassion and wisdom. Not very complicated. Is there anything I can do to make myself enlightened? Asked the disciple. And the Zen master says, as little as you can do to make the sun return. Then what's the use of all this spiritual practice and meditation? To make sure you're not asleep when the sun rises. Just that. So simple. And there you are around the Dalai Lama. You know, and he says, my religion is kindness. Or my teacher, Ajahn Chah, would have this, these little kind of phrases. If you act from a good heart, good things will be born. So simple. Blessings will come. And it's not what we say or think, but really being, again, true to the heart. I think it's uh, Chuang Tzu who said, 
a dog is not a good dog because he's a good barker, right? It's not the voice and the words and the ideas, but actually the embodiment of our life. From the Chinese sage Zhuangzu, the men and women in whom the Tao, this natural wisdom, acts without impediment, harm no other being by their actions, yet they do not think of themselves as kind or gentle. The men and women in whom the Tao, the one who knows this simple wisdom, acts, do not bother with their own interests and do not despise others who do. They don't struggle to make money, and they do not make a virtue of poverty. They go their way without relying on others, and do not pride themselves in walking alone. While they don't follow the crowd, they won't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to them. Disgrace and shame do not deter them. They're not always looking for what's right and wrong and judging others. No self is true self, and the greatest person realizes that they are nobody and everybody. So that's a kind of Taoist version of the same simple beauty. It's so organic, you know. And all that we ask is enough time to quiet the mind and open the heart and let this Buddha nature, this innate wisdom and love, shine forth. And all the different spiritual practices are really about that and not much more. Sure, I mean, there are spiritual pyrotechnics and you can have chakras and samadhis and things and they're cool for a while, you know, and then you have to eat, right? Or go to the bathroom or something like that or your kid cries or something like that, you know, and here you are back with this amazing, mysterious human predicament, this incarnation. And you can do really beautiful things with it. And those beautiful things come when you live from this one who knows, from the Buddha nature within you. So let's sit for a moment. as you let yourself get still even a little bit in between the thoughts, let the breath soften, the body at ease a little bit, even in the midst of what you carry. Maybe also a little wish that whatever stillness you can find spread out from yourself and this room and touch and remind other beings that they can take a breath, quiet themselves, and listen from the heart. Because we're really all in it together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.